Evangelization isn't a science. Actually, it's more of a movement of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit often moves in really surprising ways. But at the same time, patterns in the journey of conversion can help us better understand how we can help the Spirit make intentional disciples in our parishes and our homes. Today's we'll, today we'll talk about those patterns with author Sherry Waddell, who wrote the book Forming Intentional Disciples and Fruitful Discipleship, Living the Mission of Jesus Christ in the Church and the World. I'm Father Dave Pavonk, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And we're talking today about intentional and fruitful discipleship. I'm joined with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin. How are you this morning? Fine. Yes. Good, good. Dr. Scott Hahn, all is well? Yes. Great. It's great to have you back. We're also joined this morning, really, really excited to have Sherry Waddell with us. Sherry is the executive director and co-founder of the Catherine of Siena Institute, which among other things, trains Catholic leaders in the art of evangelization. In 1983, she created the first charism discernment process designed to help Catholics. And it's been a great success in helping Catholics understand their faith and their role in discipleship and evangelization. Sherry, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Great. So I always ask the same question. Why did you write these books? Ha! Basically, God whomped me outside the head. Um, it's, it's always nice being whomped, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, literally. I literally got an, uh, an email at 6.30 in the morning from an editor. Oh, so you say, if you had an email from God, that's what I would love. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's sort of an intermediary, yeah. Uh, she just wrote and she said, you know, She'd been after me for a while, and, and I said I didn't have time to write a book, and she wrote back and said, oh, you aren't thinking of that, are you, by any chance? And I wrote her back and said, well, as a matter of fact, I think it's time, but I'm working on this book on evangelization right now, and I need to finish that, and then we can talk. She said, oh, send us everything you have. And by 2.30 that afternoon, the, media, the committee, acquisitions committee had met and bought it, basically, oh, sight unseen, which was good because I hadn't written it. <laughs> And uh, I had five months to try and pull it together. So that's, I literally got opened a big door. I just had to walk through. Okay, and why this topic at this time? Well, okay. At that time. We had been gotten involved. We're famous for our gift discernment process for the called and gifted. And in the course of listening to tens of thousands of Catholics talk to us about their lived relationship with God and their experience of God, we became aware that a lot of them didn't have a relationship with God, which is, which is why they couldn't discern. <laughs> And so that moved us into evangelization, and we'd been wrestling with this. And we work mostly with Catholic parishes and Catholic dioceses all over the world. And we've been wrestling with this for years and years, learning uh, a lot about, that's how we learned about the thresholds. That's how we mm -hmm. learned where Catholics really were. Uh, if you, because most of the time we, we tell people what they should believe, but we don't listen to what they actually, where they're starting. Right. And, we learned slowly, and so I'd already been doing this for about 15 years before the door opened, and they said, could you write the book? 
You mentioned the thresholds, and that's significant to your first book. Can you speak about that, the thresholds of evangelization and conversion? Yeah. Okay, this, this was actually discovered in campus ministry in the mid-90s, um, and then I stumbled across it, and we started to use it. It was incredibly valuable. It's sort of the kind of the, the culture has changed so much that people's journey has changed so much. Their spiritual journey has changed. And, it, and most, basically, a lot of people now don't trust us. They don't trust, they don't believe in God, they don't trust the church, they don't trust Christ. So the first task is to build a bridge of trust. That first threshold is moving from distrust to trust, if, it's, if there isn't a bridge of trust in place, and then moving from trust into curiosity, which is casual curiosity. It's not serious seeking yet, but it's like, Hey, that's kind of interesting, you know. I'm interested, and then, you know, and then you you're paying attention to something else, but you're you're intrigued and helping people become more and more curious. And then the critical, the transition that's so critical now is moving into openness. Spiritual openness means I come to the point where I'm able to acknowledge to God and to myself, in some real way, that I'm open to the possibility of change. I'm not committing to anything. I'm not signing any, any you know, documents here. I'm just saying, if you're there and you can hear me and you care, yeah. I'm open, yeah. you know. So but, uh, the, the operative word here, I think, is pre-evangelical. I mean, all of this antedates. Uh, uh, all of this is pre-evangelization. And that's crucial in yeah. our situation where it basically, uh, you know, there's like 30 million former Catholics in the United States. Okay, let's just real quick, because we use the word pre-evangelization, but what, do you, what does that mean when you say pre-evangelization? Okay. What does that mean? Where are you coming from? This is, okay, it, it, the, the church talks about sort of three stages to evangelization. There's pre-evangelization, proclamation, formal proclamation of the gospel of the Christ himself, and then initial catechesis. Pre-evangelization is that very, very, it, it's before the proclamation, it's building the relationships of trust that earn you the right even to have these conversations. It's helping become, people become, in, develop some initial curiosity about Jesus and about his church, but there's you know, no commitment yet. And it, it's really, and then helping them move into that crucial area where I'm becoming open just for the first time. And that is the longest journey right now. It's the most difficult one. And to be honest, it's the one we have almost no vision for, no leadership for, no formation for, <laughs> uh, because we tend to want to leap over that and go right into catechesis yeah. institutionally at the parish level. And that's where I've been working, and not at a university like uh -huh. this. I've, we work in parishes and dioceses all over the world. And where we tend to go in parishes is you go right to catechesis and you presume that the family and the culture has prepared people, but in fact I it mean, has you can't to. even presume anymore that people no. are fully human. <laughs> I mean, Leon Cass speaks of a post-human uh, uh, moment and that's what we're living through. Uh, and so how do you establish the humanity of this person whom God very much wants to infect with his, uh, his love? Well, we have to understand, for instance, um, in the United States, the Pew Forum found that only 63% of adults in the U.S. are absolutely certain God exists. So, and that includes a lot of Catholics yeah. who don't know that either. And we're running into them everywhere, including Catholics who are actually in our pews, sure. but who think of God, as one woman told me, she said, he's distant. He basically, he is a distant, nasty rule enforcer who doesn't care about you or your family but he only shows up to 
To punish. punish yeah, to punish yeah, you yeah, yeah, when yeah. you screw up. Sure. But he's not a God of love. And then the, ki- the thing that stunned me is she said, but Jesus was my buddy when I was a, f- a child. And I said, tell me more about that. And she goes, well, you know, that's because Jesus wasn't God. God oh, was the nasty God. rule enforcer. Jesus was some mystical buddy. Somehow he was, he was a good guy. Yeah. Most people believe he's a good guy, but he wasn't God. And, and this woman was raised Catholic. Yeah. She went through First Communion prep. She was attending Mass every right. weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she said, I didn't know until I read your book right. <laughs> that this, any of this was possible. She says, I've been on a long journey for three years now. Right. That's a, what a screaming contradiction that is, because Jesus said he was God. So if he wasn't, then he was scarcely a human, a good human being. He was yeah. a liar. But, but they're not reading scripture. I mean, yeah, you know, any of this stuff. It's just, this is just, some of it is just, you pick things up out of the air, a few comments from people and family and friends around you, some of your, your classmates in school, and then you frame it together in your own understanding. But we've run into many, many, many cultural Catholics, cradle Catholics who were raised in the church who have told us similar stories. Sure, sure. You know, when you talk about people who go to mass regularly, you wonder what they're doing or thinking when it's time to uh, profess the creed. You know, God from God, light from light. True, but you know, no point pressing that. I, I would take a step back and ask you this: When you describe the threshold experience, the fact that God has no grandchildren and all of that, oh. to win trust, you know, it, it seems to me that friendship sort of encapsulates or at least closely approximates what you're talking about. And in a certain sense, a, a friend is a surrogate sibling. You know, with the breakdown of the family, mm-hmm. with the secularization of society, and now with the virtualization of reality, you know, uh, your friends are, you know, the people you like on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Whereas it seems like you're talking about something that is pre all of that, not only pre-evangelization, but pre-secularization going back to the most primitive and basic human experience of entering into bonds of affection and trust where you share experiences. And as you say, or as we used to say in Young Life, you win the right to be heard. Exactly. Yeah. You do. And that is the most, I have to keep saying over and over again, if there is no bridge of trust in place, that is the first missionary task. You will not be able to move any further. And guess who gets to build the bridge? Who's the build bridger? You. The person who knows them, and this is where, of course, the role of the lady becomes huge because we're in their lives in all kinds of non-official, non-religious you know, categories. Yeah. But what you're doing there, I think, is something not only restorative of what it means to be right. human in a natural way, but it's also profoundly preparatory because yes. you know, friendship with others is sort of the medium for the gospel message, which is friendship with God through Christ. Mm-hmm. I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. You know, Something outrageous, unthinkable to the classical pagan philosophers even the best of the lot, like Plato and Aristotle, would not think that friendship with a deity no. would be even a metaphysical possibility. Mm-hmm. So you prime the pump through friendship. Mm-hmm. And so when you lead them into you know, the discovery of the gospel, you know, you've already sort of put flesh on that. Mm-hmm. And that is, we actually, we have a whole, we call them Ananiases after uh, St. Paul's first mentor. Yep. But we actually form just regular Catholics, regular lay people to be essentially 
informal evangelizing companions who know how to listen to somebody else's story and recognize the evidence of God at work, who can hear where somebody has been, where they are now, what has happened, and the significance of that, who can tell their own story, who can tell Jesus' story. Ananias, what was that again? And Ananias, we call them Ananiases, we're forming you know, Ananiases. Ananias, though, in Acts 9 is a perfect exemplar because the first thing he does is to express his fear. Yeah. You know, it's like I've heard of this guy. You yeah. know, Saul of Damascus, you know, Saul of Tarsus. You know, and, and I think that's why it's probably apt for uh, Catholics to get involved and to see in Ananias the honesty, the transparency. God, I'm I'm stepping out. But think this about is, it. He had to <laughs> he had to leave his like you said his comfort zone. Oh my! And go meet this man who. You know, he was put everything the enemy, at risk. Was the enemy because he could have been arrested? It could have been fooled you. You know, but when he in, greets him, yeah, he greets him as brother. Yeah, brother. Right. there's something right. that that because God spoke to, to Ananias exactly. yeah. and got through to him before he. It seems to like when you, what you're saying is is quite natural. That yeah, it's just it's not natural for Catholics though. Yeah, uh, but the, the friendship level. part. I mean, the just that developing part, relationship yeah. and what you help them do is to make sure. those next step. But that I think sometimes get people get very intimidated by the whole idea of it. Right. And, and what you're saying at this point is just develop relationships. Develop the relationships, but in a, in a, in other words, with a missional stance mm -hmm. and attitude so that instead of saying, well, I can't talk to so-and-so because they don't believe, you know, I, I, we don't have nothing in common. The missionary stance is to say, well, I'm in their life, and I could, you know, I could be I the avenue through which they realize there's something more to the world but, but than they it, know. But it, it strikes me that what you're really saying is that nobody believes. Uh, you're, you're describing a wholly unprecedented uh, situation. It used to be that people who went to Mass, you could presume, oh yeah, they get it. They, they can recite the Creed. And in fact, when they witness the consecration, it's a flashpoint. I mean, this is God. Yeah. But nowadays, you can't take that as a given. No, most, most, to be honest, uh, most like, uh, people raised in the church typically were there to fulfill their obligation. Um, and that is what we've heard everywhere. And so, and so many, even now, I mean, I had a man come walk up to me at a conference, I couldn't believe it. This was an invitation only, only 200 people were there. It was all on evangelization, it was a national group. And the first man who walked up to me at the break said, until I read Forming Intentional Disciples last month, he said, I did not know it was possible to have a relationship with God. And I'm like, like I'm sitting there thinking, I can deal with this at a parish, but not at this conference. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you need to tell me more. Help me understand why, you know, what your experience has yeah, been. And he goes, he says, well, he, this, this guy is in full-time ministry forming clergy, <laughs> okay? Yeah. He came from a very seriously practicing family. They were very faithful. They went to Mass all the time. He said, we always did it. And he obviously cares intensely for the church or he would not be sure. doing what he's doing. He's a good guy, but he said, I literally didn't know. No one ever talked about it until I read your book. And you know how many of these conversations I've had all over the world? Archbishops, mm -hmm. seminary faculty. I mean, but didn't he ever pray the Our religious. Father? We're talking to God. <laughs> Our Father in heaven. Okay, yeah. okay. You ha we have to understand the norm. If I was going to use threshold language, mm -hmm. the spiritual norm of Catholics in an ordinary diocesan parish, not associated with any specialized renewal movement, okay, is typically at trust. If there is no trust, they won't be even. They won't even darken the door. Yeah. Distrust, you don't walk in. 
but if there's a brown, some bridge of trust in place, you may well walk in. You may even be active. You may even end up in leadership. Our experience is the average norm is of the community as a whole, and as the individuals, is back at trust. Leaders are sometimes in, are in curiosity sometimes, but they don't move beyond it. The really, the big issue is how many of our people have actually begun to move into openness and beyond where you're really grappling now with God. And that's a good place, and we'll pick that up. All right. We've got a lot more to talk about, so stay with us as Franciscan University Presents continues. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. And um, I think it's, it's witness that makes uh, the faith so much more compelling. You know, it's, it's witness that shows us that the faith can be lived, that it's not just this impossible ideal that, uh, you know, it may sound good, it may sound terrible, but you see somebody who's actually living the faith and you see that person's joy, you see that person's um, peace, uh, and, and that's attractive. And, and you kind of wonder, you know, why? Why does that person live like that? Why, how can that person be happy when they live like this, which is so different from what the world says? Um, and that can spark questions and conversations and then, uh, you know, the decision to, to follow Jesus. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about intentional and fruitful discipleship. We were left, we were talking about the thresholds of discipleship and moving through those, and you left us at openness. But that's not the end. There has to be something more than just being open. That's actually, that's the beginning of the real, that, the the real journey okay. in many ways. That is what we find, the stories we hear is that it, it's the point where somebody acknowledges, often in their own words, I mean, they, they talk to God for the first time maybe in their whole lives, in their own words, and say, if you're there, I'm open, you know, if you exist, if you care. Uh, and I've had so many people, when I started talking about this, we call it, we actually encourage people to pray a prayer of openness in the course of the called and gifted discernment process. And um, I hear these stories all over the world, like one young man in Australia, he says, I started praying that when I was eight years old. He comes from a completely non-deistic uh, Asian background. Mm. And at eight, he started, he just said, I just started praying that, and he was finally baptized at 20, and now he's one of the greatest, uh, biggest lay leaders in the whole of uh, the Australian church. Um, and I've heard, and I was on the road in uh, the UK last year, and the priest who was you know, driving me around, he says, I prayed that when I was 11. And you find there's this whole little underground of people who all of us had prayed similar things at crucial moments that God moved us to do so. And that opens a whole new horizon because now I am um, really beginning to part that personal wrestling with God directly, which is so, so profound. And as you become more and more open, 
our goal, of course, this is the, the stage where we want them to begin to wrestle with the kerygma, with the story of Jesus, what he has done for us, and uh, who he is and all of that, and so that they become more open to him yeah. as, they, as they grow closer, and they move into what we call the threshold of seeking, which is now I'm really, I'm beyond casual curiosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, I am, this is, this is like dating with a purpose. It's not casual dating. Now I'm thinking, are you the one? Am I going to commit here? Is this going to change my life? That's the kind of intensity. Yeah. But you're asking, am I going to follow? Will this, I, what this, am I going to do again? This with pilgrim Jesus. status uh, you speak yes. of uh, seems to me perfectly natural. Uh, and it's childlike, isn't it? I mean, the child is, is always open, receptive, and almost virginal uh, readiness to receive. And I think Jesus speaks of this in one of the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit. Uh, you're only interested in the truth. I want being. I mean, that's sort of a Marian comprehension. I just want to know the truth. I, I don't want to advance myself. I don't have an agenda. I just want to be open, transparent uh, to the other, to but God. I, but I think we have to, in our culture, for a lot of people, 21st century postmodern people, moving into openness is the single most difficult transition to make <sighs> because you are giving up at least the illusion, <laughs> it's not reality, but the illusion of total control of your life. But isn't that what one of the, I think, the blessings of the 12-step program is? is yeah. that, isn't that that moment right there, right, mm -hmm. that one admits yeah. That there's their powerlessness, that, and you've been able to identify that in the journey of faith and their journey of deception. Yeah. yeah, and so it's 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 a huge transition. Takes a lot of support and a lot of intercessory prayer on our part yeah. to p help people make this. But it's a very crucial turning point. And then, as I said, as they become more and more uh, drawn in and be, turn into seekers and are really now grappling with what will I, how will I respond to Jesus Christ yeah. and His Church and the challenge thereof. And then we want to help them, of course, do what we, we use the biblical image of dropping your nets. Jesus meeting the apostles on the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and uh, he says, come follow me. And scripture says, well, they dropped their nets. They left their nets, and they right. followed him. Yeah. Now, obviously, they didn't know what was coming. It wasn't like they, they, they couldn't tell you that the crucifixion was in the future, yeah. and the raising of Lazarus, and the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. All of that was for later. Yeah. much less the resurrection and what would happen yeah. then. But they were, had begun the journey. They had just begun the journey. Mm -hmm. And so the church calls the journey of discipleship, they say it's the second and lifelong conversion. So there's this initial journey, yeah. Yeah. which most people in our culture have not made yet. And then there's the ongoing journey of the yeah. conversion as a disciple right. walking say, with Jesus. They say it's that, who are they? We're describing the second journey as... This is catechism, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, I thought so. Yeah. So how much of this is like overlapping with the new evangelization? Oh, it's, it's crucial, but the problem is I wrote For Me Intentional Disciples to describe that basic, the first journey, right. okay, because we weren't talking about it. Right. We tended, at a parish level, we functioned, we kept offering basically spiritual physics college, university-level spiritual mm -hmm. physics mm -hmm. to preschoolers, to spiritual preschoolers, and we wondered why they were bored or unable to take it in. Because in, in terms of imagination, experience, etc., many 21st century people are far, far, far away. They, we can't even presume belief in a personal God, much less any sense that that God is interested in me. 
You know, it's striking what difference 70 years makes to be in the 2020s and to go back to the 1950s. You know, it reminds me of Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. But you know, what, what, what set into motion was a kind of secularization that was so gradual and yet so, so, so substantial that what, what ended up bothering Jeremiah the most was not that the people of God were in exile, was that it was that they didn't know it. Mm. They were in exile and they were so, you know, it's one thing to go to Babylon and be told by Jeremiah to build homes, plant gardens, mm -hmm. pray for the peace of the city mm -hmm. to which you've been driven. It's another thing to wake up and realize that that's their hometown now, you know, that that is what they identify with we, entirely. Yeah. And so this this pre-evangelization It's me crucial because we are we are just not in Christendom anymore in any way, shape or form. We are in missiondom. That's what I call it. We're yeah. living in missiondom and we cannot presume anything. You have to start where people are actually starting themselves. So our mantra is never accept a label in place of a story. If they say they're Catholic, you have no idea what that means anymore. It could mean they could be a great saint or they could be a de facto atheist or anything in between. You have to let them tell you yeah. what their experience. But there is one presumption I think that you can safely make. I mean, the church has historically made it and Aquinas expresses it, man has a natural desire for God, a longing for God. This is the deepest, most driving uh, uh, desire of the heart, a hunger uh, for God. I mean, are, are you in, telling me but that in people this have culture, anesthetized themselves? Well, it's, think about it. They're, they're surrounded by the culture 24-7, and especially you're online now 24-7. Yeah. And, and so everything we know about if we look, want to look at the generations, millennials and Gen Z, now, which is now the university uh, mm -hmm. community, um, they're, I mean, Pew basically said that only, what, like 11% of younger millennials, so in their 20s, uh, are absolutely certain God exists. But I think they know that justice exists. They are, even if, they're very moved by that. Yeah, and I think they also know that there is a such thing as goodness, even if they have to and see goodness it. And goodness is, is one of the big, that's why we start with the kingdom. Because goodness, it's very interesting. They have, many postmodern people have to see that we're good and just, justice is huge, before they'll be open to the, to the truth we propose. Because mm -hmm. that's crucial to building right. the bridge. And so you have to begin with the transcendentals, those qualities yeah. of being itself that the medievals identify as the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And I think they're drawn by beauty. They're a little skeptical when it comes to truth. They celebrate diversity, so they're not sure about unity. But one, true, good, and beautiful. Even justice, I think. The, their idea of justice is, is fairness or it's yeah, kind of yeah, watered down. Not being Distorted. Yeah. 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 Being nice and yeah. tolerant. And, and so at each and every point, I think what you can do is just say, well, that has a name, justice. Mm -hmm. That has a name, goodness. That has a name, beauty. You know, but and, they, but and so, you know, the gap between yeah. God as a term and the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful, that's what we bridge through friendship. Right. You know, by embodying, but they by have to see. They have to see some evidence of compelling goodness in our lives mm -hmm. that stands out, that's real, and that's authentic that they can actually see and trust. Well, what about the example of Jesus, the man for others, who goes all the way to the cross? Yeah. I mean, isn't that uh, the definition? That's of being for for good. somebody who's starting. We're, we're talking about people who are in very early stages, yes. and they're usually their knowledge of Jesus is almost non-existent. 
um, they don't it's not coming through the culture in the family anymore and I think you, you speak of obstacles and I think tragically in some ways there's a population that sees Jesus the church as part of the problem Exactly. Part of the problem. Exactly. So I have to be able to work through that. We do. And yeah. we have to, that's where the, the, if you will, the testimony, the life of those of us that they know becomes hugely important. We are the personal bridge to the possibility that there's more here right. than the, I envision. This notion of justice, I, I think, is, is helpful because it, it, it seems to me that most people instinctively want justice and they don't want to see some guy uh, killing and being wicked with impunity. There has to be some mm -hmm. consequence, even yeah. if it gets deferred until the next world. There has to be an ultimate standard that we measure our lives against. I mean, that sort of becomes a point of entry uh, into actually, the transcendent. Yeah, and actually the, this, you know, the old-fashioned, but the, they're not old-fashioned, but the corporal and spiritual works of mm -hmm. mercy mm -hmm. become very crucial here. The church's social teaching is very crucial here. Mm -hmm. um, that they, but seeing it lived, they frankly don't care about our ideas until they see it embodied, incarnated in a real person, in a real relationship. You know, I, I think of the, um, the first generation, the first century, Jesus himself, the best, but not the most successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, the vast majority of his own countrymen didn't respond, you know. Right. So it's not just the church that makes it difficult. It's also the 12 disciples who made it difficult back then. And I suspect that if Jesus had said, well, you know what, go away for a month and we'll see mm -hmm. what success rates we'll have. You know, we have not allowed ourselves to take into our, our prayer uh, the words you know, this faithless and perverse generation, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. You know, there isn't, there isn't any objective norm that binds us whereby we have to only call evangelization successful when it's 50% plus one right. or any percent. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, and so we have to believe that God has called people and we don't know who they are. Like Elijah, I'm the only one who's left. No, you're not. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You don't know their name. You don't have the directory. So just keep preaching, keep befriending. But at the end of the day, even as we've gone through the checklist and basically done it all, it won't be the case that finally we have the formula for success and finally our churches are full, everybody right. is effective and fruitful. I mean, you have to put up with what it's like to evangelize in Babylonian captivity. Yeah, you know, I, I think of we're Gandhi's... In, we, are uh, in, we, we have to understand we're functioning in a missionary setting. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is not... None of us and our children and our grandchildren will not see Christendom again. Right, yeah, no, okay. that's probably true. So, that's, so I, we, we're, we, it's a, we're, now the church has been here many times before. And, and very fruitfully, very effectively responded. We have an enormous, immense missionary tradition that we've lost track of most of the time lately. I, I, I do think that the importance of evangelizing individuals trumps everything else. But evangelization of culture does something it's, close behind because it's, if, we don't, if we don't evangelize culture, the culture will devangelize us. So though we have the loss of Christendom, I think what we've also faced now is the loss of any desire 
for, Christ, for Christendom yeah. or for Christian culture. And I think that's also a part of the problem, that we've reduced this down to a kind of experiential individualism that is so foundational but so inadequate because we are social animals. Yeah. And that's really an implicit admission of despair that I don't think the culture is worth it. Others are not worth it uh, for me to incarnate the forms of, of Catholic Christianity in some enduring and permanent shape that has institutional expression. I just don't care about that. That means you've given up. Well, I think, but in missional settings, it looks, how you go about that is different and it looks different. And the fruit, but it still bears fruit. We we still have the you know the responsibility of the laity for the culture for pre-evangelization, which is setting the stage for people to encounter Christ. Okay, and in making right that, through forming intentional yeah, communities and communities way. and friendship and you know. And in the same way, you say that there's these the thresholds that are able to be seen to be measured. The yes. fruit is also and it's seen. So let's talk about yes. that in just a moment. Okay, good. Sure. We'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. My experience working uh, in charge of the faith households here at Franciscan University, I find that the more we focus on and highlight the small group experiences and the interpersonal friendships that come from the faith households, the greater is the, the growth, the greater is the evangelization, the greater is the formation, because we do have events and students uh, have countless resources in today's day and age to tap into speakers and podcasts and everything like that. But the, the small groups and the friendships within the households, are that, that's where it's lived out and where it's unpacked because they're going out, they're living their lives, taking their classes, working their jobs, and then coming back and unpacking how the message and how the encounter that they've had with God lines up with their experience and how they can apply the principles and, and those things to their life and live out the Christian call in the world. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we are coming to you from the ComArts studio here on the campus of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment. The members of our theology faculty, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn, and I are discussing intentional and fruitful discipleship with our guest, Sherry Waddell. Sherry, last thing we talked about was uh, fruits. And so we can see stages of evangelization, discipleship, but it it ought to produce something. So speak to that for us. And that is the most gripping, most compelling, most hopeful thing is to see the fruit that moves out of people's lives that God produces in people's lives when they start to follow Jesus seriously. Um, and uh, we've seen it all over the world, how it changes their lives, changes the parishes they're in, their families, their community. Um, in parishes, 
you know, disciples fill every class mm -hmm. in the place because they're really hungry. They want to learn how to pray. They want to serve. They clamor to discern God's call in their lives. The charisms start manifesting because... Oh, speak of charisms. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The charisms start manifesting. We've heard many... We've, you have to understand, we've worked with about 150,000 Catholics all over That's the so world great. in helping them facilitate that discernment process. So, um, and what we've heard over and over again is about, you know, after they, this turn, they have a spiritual awakening, a conversion of some kind, they drop their nets, and then a year or so later they say, this thing showed up in my life. What is this thing? And I'm like, tell me a story, you know. We, yeah. And then inevitably, it often turns out to be a charism. Charisms are the ways that we are, uh, the gifts, they're called gratuitous graces in the tradition. St. Thomas calls them that. And what that means is they are gifts we are given for the sake of others, as opposed to sanctifying grace, which is primarily for our own salvation and our own relationship with God. But these are ways that we are used by God in the life of others to be instruments of His love and His mercy and His beauty and His truth and His healing and His hospitality and welcome and provision for other people mm. and ways that and they're crucial in evangelization because they're ways that we all the charisms are evangelizing in their mm -hmm. own way mm -hmm. and all of them are healing in their own way and, uh, and all of them make if you will they are sort of channels of God's of Christ's redemptive grace in some very particular way. One of the things I loved in, in your book on the, the fruits of the charisms <clears throat> excuse me, was how practical you were. You had a story for everything. And that's that just helps you. It's not just an idea. It's not just a no. theology. It's just that this is the lived experience of the disciples operating the charisms and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've heard, I mean, t I, I've hundreds you got a fun, of stories. You got a fun story. I, I, okay. Uh, let me think of a particular yeah, okay. one. Okay. One, one really one that struck me. Uh, some years ago, I got a letter from a woman I've never met. And she wrote me, she just said, I'm telling you, I'm about to leave. I'm in the middle of missionary training, and I'm about to leave to go to Africa for three years where she was going to help the World Health Organization train local people to distribute AIDS medication. And she said, the reason I'm doing this is a year ago, I drove hundreds of miles from my state to another state to attend a little tiny called and gifted workshop. And she said, I discerned the possibility of a charism of missionary. Never in my life did I ever dream of anything like it. And she says, I'm just letting you know, this has changed my life. And it was so funny. Now she went, the country she went to, the AIDS rate dropped in the last 15 years That's dramatically. Fantastic. And when you do the math, it's like 30 million people didn't die early of AIDS, which are usually the adults who are raising the children, running the so businesses, beautiful. running the country, et cetera. And I was telling her story at a women's group in my own parish because I just I was still pondering it, you know, thinking about it. And that woman turned to me and she goes, "But she's like Esther. <laughs> Who knows? But what she was raised up by God for such a time as this." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, of course." But that's the whole point. We were all all the baptized people come in and say, "I don't have any charism." Say, "Are you baptized?" It's too late. <laughs> Because they come, when we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism, become temples of the Holy Spirit, the charisms are one of one part of a much larger, of course, spiritual phenomenon that happens. But they're one of the gifts we're given. But when we start to take that, it becomes personal. It's no longer just notional or not just something I was raised in, but now I'm seeking maybe even just, just at the beginning stages of beginning to follow Jesus intentionally, these gifts start to manifest. Mm -hmm. 
because their only purpose is to help you be an instrument of God's purpose and right. healing in someone else's life. And, and at the end of your life, he's going to ask you about it. What did you do with the charisms I, I And at the end of your life, he's going to tell you what he did with it. Yeah, that's Yes. Beautiful. Because the fruit of your fruit is mostly yeah. hidden from us in our yeah, lifetimes. That's a beautiful. It's But there's Cindy, every, every act of obedience, whether it's a charism or responding to a grace of the Holy Spirit of some kind or... You know, whenever we respond to that, we receive it, respond to it, and cooperate with it, we send these ripples out into right. history. And then the fruit, and, and there are people out there who are the fruit of your fruit right, yeah. that you don't even know. There's this wonderful mantra uh, that people assign to Catherine of Siena. If, you know, if you, if you become what God intends you to become, you'll set the world on fire. Exactly. Was that one of the reasons you chose her as your patroness? Well, we chose her because she was lay, because she's oh, a fabulous yes. evangelizer. Mm -hmm. right. She was Dominican, and I was working with a Dominican priest. Right. So, That's yeah. okay. Yeah. Hey, yeah. yeah, it was perfect. She's a great, great mentor Amen. and Amen. patron for us. But, but that is the, t the fate of the church and the fate of the world in every generation depends on the number of our people whom we help make the living journey into discipleship and then, if you will, into someone who Christ can send to become apostles in their own right, someone who Christ is sending on his behalf. The charisms are tools given to apostles who have a mission. So helping every baptized person, okay, there's no such thing as vocational unemployment. Right. Yeah. All right, for the baptized, we all have charisms. We all right. have this work of love that God is calling us, has prepared us for, has gifted us for. There are people out there waiting for what you have been given yeah. to give. And in God's providence, you are the one. Yeah. Even if you don't know who they are yet, even if they haven't been born yet. Because what God will do through you will send ripples out into history that will be the answer even to the prayers of people who are not yet born. Yeah. To uh, draw from another Dominican, uh, St. Thomas highlights the analogy between physical life and spiritual life, but also physical maturity and growth as well as spiritual growth and maturity. So I think of, um, of what it's like to raise teenagers, young adults who might have the physical capacity to reproduce but don't have anything else yet, you know. And the fruitfulness that you're speaking of, you know, be fruitful and multiply. You know, at the most basic level of physical life, you know, it startles men and women to recognize, oh my goodness, you know, these charisms, these mm -hmm. experiences have caused new creatures, you know, God's children. And that sort of fruitfulness has a natural analogy in, this, mm -hmm. in the spiritual life, but it has a supernatural analogy as well that it, it extends beyond the, the household, it extends beyond the parish. Mm -hmm. You know, it really does kind of reinsert us into something much bigger and more divine and consequently invisible. And so the idea of having a fruitful life, but I, I love the image that you will find out when you come to the house of the Father that your fruit bore fruit and that bore fruit. And, mm. you know, I, I can't help but wonder if the first two or three million years of, of heaven won't be, at <laughs> least in part, our sharing the stories and then saying, exactly. so it was you. Or your prayers. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful image. Well, I've had people walk up to me and say, literally, I'm the fruit of your fruit. Yeah. I've never met these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had nothing to do at all, as far as I yeah. knew, with anything. But 
but that's that's the way it works in the kingdom. That's that's how the the communion of spiritual goods works, mm-hmm. and the church talks about the communion of charisms. Okay, so my fruit that I, every one of us who isn't bearing fruit is basically depriving the church right. and weakening the church, and also depriving the people for who God intended to receive our fruit and be the recipients of it. I mean, it, it, you know, God could easily pull this off on his own. Oh, absolutely. He doesn't need us, but it's he more glorious that he extends the favor, the courtesy to us. And he's going to ask us, what did you do with that gift? He raises us to the dignity of being causes. Mm. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, absolutely. And that is part of what is it, when we don't make disciples, we are unintentionally repressing yeah. the emergence of conversions, the emergence of vocations that are going to change the lives of millions yeah. ultimately. And so much of, the, of God's provision in this world is supposed to pass through His people. That is the intention. That's yeah. how it's supposed to work in the kingdom. One of the things I think you do beautifully is it's a challenge, it's an invitation for an image of church that involves everybody. everybody. You know, it can't just be me, the clergy, um, you, the professors who have all the knowledge. But I love that image that everybody is invited into this this mission that we call church. In the kingdom, everybody matters. Every Not just invited. I mean, that yeah, wasn't a strong sure. enough word. Commanded. Enjoyed. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you think of the first of the 150 Psalms, you know, that the righteous man or woman is like a tree planted by yes. the stream, you know, and it bears fruit you know, in season and out of season. The downside of that, of course, is the barren fig tree, you know, mm-hmm. that serves, serves as an ominous sign of, a, of what awaits us mm-hmm. if we just kind of hoard it, you know, to ourselves. You know, uh, there really is not a curse that has to come extrinsically, but we put ourselves into a situation of barrenness when we don't share. And the good news is in the past, we've seen like in the generation, the great revival in early 17th century France, many, many men and women, people from all backgrounds, poor people, educated people, nobility, you know, bishops, priests, religious, lay people, um, from all backgrounds were being raised up as apostles who collaborated together, Mm -hmm. stole from each other, learned from each other, Mm -hmm. mentored Mm -hmm. each Mm -hmm. other, and together reinvented the church in a missionary key in response to much more severe pressures than we are now facing, Mm -hmm. okay? That that image, uh, Scott, from (laughs) Psalm 1 of the tree is really inspired because the thing about the tree is it's utterly unaware of being a tree. Uh, We're not supposed to be thinking about what I'm doing. This self-forgetfulness, I think, is the ground for the work that God wants us uh, to do, that only we can do. Amen. Now, I, I, would, I would be sure. remiss. Uh, you spend a great deal of time talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, which is one of my favorite Thanks, topics. Sure. So maybe just, we've got just a couple of minutes, just the role of the Holy Spirit in, in this process. Yes. Okay. Um, obviously, we received the Holy Spirit in baptism and then in confirmation, you know, strengthened that. And then every time we receive communion, we're receiving the Holy Spirit. Most people, we don't talk about that very mm-hmm. often, but of course, uh, Christ himself, his, his body is... Saturated. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed yeah, one. Saturated. Yeah. I mean, he is saturated, and so you, the, as Saint Ephraim said, you know, you receive fire in the Holy Spirit when you receive communion. So, and throughout the day, the, Christ is pouring His Holy Spirit out on His church and on His people, 
And it's really up to us. It's about our awareness and openness, moment by moment, and the, and the actual graces, the inspirations that we are sent. That, you know, the issue isn't that, it isn't that God isn't present and that he isn't pouring out these graces to us. It's always, are we open? Are we aware? Are we seeking to recognize the grace of this moment and respond, receive it, and cooperate with mm -hmm. it? Because out of that, every time you do that or I do that, interiorly or exteriorly, grace is born out of that. Fruit is born out of that. I mean, yeah. and and that fruit changes uh, the world around us. Yeah. And so, the fruitfulness in any generation, the, the well-being of the whole church is determined by the fruitfulness of her people. Yeah. Now, people ask me, and I get these questions, you know, like, what percentage of the of, if you will, the charisms and the vocations that we've been given. And, and there's no such thing as vocational unemployment, so we all have mm -hmm. something to discern. Mm -hmm. You know, how, many of that, how much of that is being expressed? And I have to tell you, you know, globally what I tell other people, which is about 1%. Yeah. Okay, so you can look at that negatively, or you can say, wow. How much what, God does, right? How much is available to us? Yeah. Incredible. Think of it. What if we even just doubled <laughs> that number? We would hardly know what to do with ourselves. Yeah. Uh, the care, so, so every person we meet is potentially a great apostle, no matter where they seem to be now in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and this, you know, and God's purposes. And I, maybe I'll be the kind of John the Baptist figure that will recognize and welcome these new anointed ones yeah, whom God has incredible. sent to change this world. That's great, thank you so much. Up next, our panel and our guests will share their final thoughts on intentional and fruitful discipleship. Stay with us. really give us a model for how to witness. So we look at somebody like St. Francis of Assisi who uh, attracted thousands of people to, to Jesus by his love for Jesus and his joy for Jesus. Um, during his lifetime, and uh, and and so the church in, in Francis's time, or it was not so much different from the church in our time, and so we can really learn from Francis's example. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, would you like to share your final thoughts? Uh, I'd like to thank you uh, so much for coming. These are two very wonderful books. I, I was struck by the opening anecdote uh, about how uh, you gave birth to both. You didn't even know what you were going to write, and then you get commissioned to write it. Uh, it reminded me of a comment that Balzac made. He described the books that you don't write, but you think about writing as enchanted cigarettes. They're perfect <laughs> because they don't exist. But yours, uh, you have given existence to, and they're splendid. They're really rich uh, compendia of what it is we need to do. Uh, the theme I would uh, want to leave uh, our listeners with is the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's the spirit of surprise, not just freedom, not just the power and love of, of, uh, of the Godhead, but he surprises us. I mean, the fact that you begin this amazing apostolate in a place like Seattle, Washington, I mean, that, that's a tribute uh, to this surprising spirit. 
because some would say there's nothing there. It's deeply, darkly post-Christian, and yet this is the vineyard. This is where God has sent you to sort of uh, diffuse these charisms among people whom some of us would say they don't deserve it, but but everybody uh, deserves it, and and you've done an amazing job. Uh, So, Keep it up. Uh, don't, uh, don't relax uh, your grip uh, on evangelizing uh, the world. Amen. Thank you, Regis. Scott, I would echo all of that, but especially the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit and our experience, our openness to the breath of God, because this is really what you have set forth, a practical way for us to inhale the breath of God, you know, and that's what discipleship really amounted to for the 12. And then to exhale the breath of God is really what apostolate is, you know. Mm-hmm. So to be a faithful disciple, you know, you have to study. That's what the term means in Greek. But at the same time, to be a fruitful apostle, you've got to be sent. Mm-hmm. And it isn't like, well, once you're an apostle, you cease to be a disciple. Mm-hmm. No, once you exhale, you cease to inhale <laughs> hardly, you know. You need the Holy Spirit even per- more, perhaps, and uh, indeed. So I, I think what you have set forth is something that begins on the foundation of friendship. Mm -hmm. And it never ends because Mm -hmm. the foundation is what everything rests upon. But to move from that to faithfulness and an intentional discipleship, Mm -hmm. you know, and to be a friend while you're being faithful, to be contagious Mm -hmm. and then to be fruitful. Uh, At every stage, the Holy Spirit, but most especially the gratuitous graces Mm -hmm. that you've got to discover in order to recognize that there is a division of labor you know, in the family of God. We're not a factory. We're just not going to get assigned things and we can sit if we, we can sit and do nothing if we don't. So again, I would echo the final thing that Regis said, and that is profuse thanks, not only for the two books that you wrote. Uh, these are also, whatever, ideal cigarettes, but um, for the work that you're doing. Because honestly, I think that just as Paul pointed to the Corinthians and said, what, you want my letters of recommendation? You are living epistles. You are my letters. And I think the lives that you have touched is much or more than the books that are written really will bear the fruit that we will see as you get your turn to tell your story in the first million or two years of heaven. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Scott, so much. I appreciate it. Sherry, your final thoughts. In the, in the economy of God's grace, it really matters that every person says yes mm-hmm. and the way that to what God has called them to. And so, and it matters because somebody out there is waiting for what they have been given to give. And literally their life hangs in the balance. And we have seen that so many times. And so everything, calling people to that encounter with Christ, calling them to drop their nets, calling them to discern the charisms they've been given, to calling them to discern personal vocation, all of that, that empowers evangelization at every level. It empowers the church's life and well-being, and it changes the world, and it changes the life of so many other people. So there's so much that sort of hangs in the balance when someone says yes at all those levels. And that would be, that would be what I, that's my dream. That's my, what we spend our time doing is trying to help people say yes in that way. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, We just again want to thank Sherry for being with us today. If you want to learn more about today's topic, Sherry has written an article. It's also a chapter of her book, Becoming a Parish and Intentional Disciples. Uh, It is free for the taking. If you contact uh, the university at faithandreason.com or call the number that you're going to see at the screen in a moment, 
Sherry, I just want to thank you so much. One of the things that I find most attractive about your work and what you've written is the whole idea of story. Mm -hmm. Is the thought that, that God is, has this immense, beautiful, wonderful, glorious story and that it's actually not finished, that it's still being written and we get to be a part of that story. And, and by sharing your, your own story and what the Lord has done, we can literally see what the Lord has done in your life. It inspires us that, that maybe He has something for us as well. I remember the first time I thought about myself being a disciple or an evangelist. Mm. I was actually getting my appendix taken out. <laughs> and I was in the middle of an ER and they were taking all kinds of tests and asking me questions. And I knew that I was gonna be rushed into surgery. And the nurse asked me what I did. And I said, and I was working in evangelist. I said, I guess I'm an evangelist. And she began to ask me, well, what does that mean? And I didn't want to talk about it right then. Right. And yet, it was this moment of, of grace, and it sounds so weird, but at that moment, I just knew that this is what the Lord wanted me to do. And, and for us to be able to share our story and to be a part of that story, and I think it's one of the things that I want all of our listeners to understand, and that God has a story that He's writing in the degree that each one of us, as you just said, say yes. Now, my suspicion is not everybody's going to be called to Africa. And, and, Absolutely not. But everybody is to be called and, and for them to be invited to that. And I think that's one of the great graces and blessings that you've done for us is to make us aware that we are invited. God has a great plan, a great story for us and for somebody else and that we are a part of bringing that to someone. So thank Absolutely. you. Thank you so much. So I just want to invite everyone uh, to join Franciscan University of Stoomville in our mission here at the university to educate, evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. We're all mm -hmm. about this, right? So it's wonderful that Great. you're here. Uh, we offer many academically excellent and passionately Catholic undergraduate and graduate degree programs, both on campus and online for you and your family. We also provide life-changing conferences for adults and for youth to inspire and deepen your love of Christ in His church. We also have Franciscan University pilgrimages where we go to holy shrines like France and Poland, Italy, the Holy Land, and other sacred destinations around the world. Remember to go to faithandreason.com for today's handout and watch the past episodes of Franciscan University Presents that will inspire and inform you. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing and your grace to be upon those who are watching, that they would be filled with your Holy Spirit, that you would move your grace upon them, that they would know that they have been called by you, graced by you, and empowered by you. May they be a light to a world that desperately needs it. May Almighty God pour out His blessings on you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.